Hello and welcome to the third episode of the Navigate podcast, a series created and organized by Merck. The series aims to help listeners to better navigate and understand the changing NHS landscape. In each episode, I'm joined by different leading experts in the NHS for conversations which explore different views on how service delivery is evolving across a number of conditions and what the emerging integrated care systems or ICSs could mean for the NHS and the communities and individuals they serve. My name is Amira Amin, Market Access and Pricing Director for Merck UK and Ireland. I'm delighted to welcome Rachel Butler, Consultant Clinical Scientist and Chief Operating Officer at the North Thames GLH, and Dr. Alistair Greystoke, Honorary Medical Oncologist at Newcastle's Northern Centre for Cancer Care. Rachel and Alistair, welcome to the Navigate podcast. Great to have you with us today. The promise of personalised medicine has long been spoken about, and in recent years, the NHS has taken significant steps to embed it into routine clinical practice. They've done this by developing the National Genomic Medicine Service, or GMS, whose purpose is to deliver on the commitments of the NHS long-term plan by enabling the NHS to use genomic technology and science to improve the health of the population in England. The GMS's aim is to do this by offering genomic testing through a network of seven genomic laboratory hubs known as GLHs that should operate under common national standards, specifications and protocols. I'm looking forward to exploring how the GMSs and GLHs are currently operating and discussing the challenges and opportunities of embedding personalised medicine into mainstream healthcare. Finally, I would like to get your thoughts on how to deliver a genomic medicine service which is fit for purpose today and in the future. To start today's conversation, could you both share your views on the opportunities molecular testing and personalised medicines present to patients in the NHS? Alistair, would you like to go first? Yeah, I think as an oncologist, the precision medicine is sort of markedly changing the way we treat patients. We always used to treat uh, cancers by the the tumour site they arose in. And now we've got much better understanding of the underlying genomics. And in a certain number of patients, we can identify an underlying target. That number used to be relatively small. You know, it used to be activating oncogenes. The number of activating oncogenes that we can identify is growing and the ways we can treat them is growing. But also with new therapies, there's been new opportunities for precision medicine. So in terms of synthetic lethality, you know, identifying patients whose tumours have defects in DNA damage repair, there may be potential for therapeutic options there. We also know that in terms of immune oncology agents, there's potential genomic markers that may predict for response to immune oncology agents such as microsatellite instability. And then we've got new classes of agents coming through, such as antibody drug conjugates, where you know we can start to identify the targets for this and maybe use either chemotherapy or radiotherapy in a, in a more targeted manner. So to me, this is all about personalizing medicine, understanding the biology of the cancer and giving the right treatment to the right patient. We could talk about maybe the right time later on. Wonderful. Rachel, is there anything you'd like to add? Yeah, I think so. I I look at this more from a a scientific point of view, maybe not surprisingly. I think the first thing to say is that this isn't new. We've been using sort of molecular testing in the hematological malignancies for years and in solid tumours for at least 10 years now. It's just that we're really broadening it now and applying it to lots of different tumour types. But given that cancer is essentially a genomic disease, it it isn't a surprise that we're using genomic analysis to analyse our cancer patients and to predict their response to treatments. So we're now using genomic analysis or or molecular testing for um, diagnosis, to diagnose a patient's disease, 
to predict how the patient is going to, you know, to predict their prognosis, how a patient is going to respond to treatment or what their management should be. And the real one, as, as Alistair has just described, is to be able to join up together particular molecular markers with particular drug responses as well, which, which is the one which everyone is really keen on. But it's only because we're getting a much better understanding of the cancer genomics that we're able to start using all of these molecular biomarkers in all of these different ways. So a wealth of opportunities and a wealth of, of different tumour types. Yeah, sounds sounds like a, a great opportunity or a great way to change the way in which medicines or how patients are being treated in NHS practice. And like you said, nothing, nothing new, Rachel, but now that we've covered what is personalised medicine, can you tell us a bit about the ambition of personalised medicine as it's set out in the NHS long-term plan and how it's currently being delivered in the NHS in England? Okay, so really big ambitions. NHSE have got great, great plans and it's up to us on, on the ground to try and deliver them. So I think the, the key thing that's coming from NHS England, it has to be equitable. So whatever we do, it has to be equitable. But they want us to make available and, and NHS England are trying to commission genomic services for cancer patients. They want us to be able to deliver diagnostic molecular testing for cancer patients at diagnosis or when it's going to make a difference to patients' cancer treatments. Along the lines that I've just described, it could be diagnostic tests and a lot of predictive tests, but it's constantly changing. Each year, we're adding on more and more molecular tests. NHSE definitely have an ambition for us to be providing large-scale, large cancer gene panels for our cancer patients. So whether, again, it's for hematological malignancies or whether it's for solid tumours, but it has to be equitable. They also want these services to become mainstream, whereas genomic testing used to be quite a specialist thing. This has now got to be bang in the middle of our diagnostic strategies. We're up with the big boys amongst haematology and other blood sciences. So this has got to be mainstream. It's, it's something that yeah, any clinician can now reach for and genomic tests ought to be delivered alongside any of those other basic pathologies. Um, we have to be responsive to changes um, within research amongst clinical trials. And obviously, there's lots of new data coming out all of the time. And our services have to be responsive. We've got to take on those, those new services as they become relevant for our patients. So, you know, I, I, I agree with you, Rachel. You know, to me, the number one thing is this has to be integrated. You know, traditionally, the NHS does sometimes sit in silos and you have your pathologists and you have your, you know, your molecular biologist and you have your oncologist and we all now need to work together. As you say, that even when it comes to diagnosis, you know, in MDTs, we often sit and we have a patient who has a previous cancer. And we can spend hours trying to work out if the new secondary is related to the old cancer or is another cancer. And, you know, patients can have biopsies and pathologists can spend a long time seeing under the microscope. But actually maybe just analysing the genomics of the two and seeing if they're identical and integrating that with the pathology and the radiology may give us the answer much more quickly and give us, give us better care. And so uh, I think as oncologists, pathologists and, and other members of the sort of cancer team, we all need to learn about this. We need to know about the power of this. As you say, this is nothing new. It's just become easier and cheaper to do. And it's working out how we can best use, use this in, a, in an integrated manner 
And then, the, you know, the other thing that I think is, is important is, you know, we're in a national health service. We need to be providing a, a, an efficient and cost effective service. And I think people always used to think, oh, you know, genomics, oh, that's expensive, that's hard work, it's it's slow. And the answer, it doesn't need to be anymore. And in fact, it can save us money. Not only some of the diagnostic issues that we were talking about, you and you were talking about, and, and the predictive biomarkers, but even biomarkers that mean it's less likely for a patient to respond to treatment. And starting to integrate that, or some of the new genomics that may allow you to track how a patient is doing on treatment, working out early on whether a patient is actually responding to treatment or less likely to respond to treatment could save the NHS huge amounts of money and save patients from unnecessary treatment that may be ineffective and cause side effects. Great. I I wanted just the next question to really discuss a little bit the how. And at the beginning of the episode, I I briefly introduced how the NHS plan to deliver personalised medicine on the front line. Could you briefly explain to our listeners the difference between genomic laboratory hubs or GLHs and the genomic medicine services alliances or or GMSs? So the GLHs, the genomic laboratory hubs, are essentially reconfigured services. Before we had GLHs back in 2018, across England, we had a a largest number of laboratories who were providing molecular and genomic and genetic testing services. And in 2018, essentially, we reconfigured all of those laboratories to create GLHs, and we have seven GLHs. It doesn't mean that we have seven laboratories, we have seven hubs, and each hub may be made up of a series of laboratories. But essentially, within each hub, we have a network of laboratories who are delivering their services across their regional patch. So within each each hub, you'll you'll be commissioned to deliver both services for rare disease and cancer. Obviously, we're focusing on cancer today. Within the cancer network as such, you'll be commissioned to say, well, you need to deliver services for hematological malignancies and for solid tumours as well. And you'll be expected to organise yourselves to deliver those services in the most efficient and effective and practical way as possible so that we have these centralized services which are efficient they're robust they're resilient so no more little laboratories of two or three people we're actually trying to work towards having more of a factory approach so that we can really analyze large numbers of samples we can analyze them in a rapid way we can really improve the quality of services for patients we can get rapid turnaround times but we can do it in an efficient manner so we can drive costs down because ultimately that means we can analyse more samples, we'll have more capacity. But at the same time, we want to maintain the quality and the expertise of the scientists that we have. And we also still want to continue to link with research and with clinical trials as well. So we wanted to keep all that was good, but at the same time, we wanted to drive up quality and capacity as well. So that's effectively what the genomic laboratory hubs are. And we work very closely with the GMSAs, which Annie will tell you about. They're basically the parallel services to deliver the medicine alongside. So we've got the laboratories there, but at the front end, you've obviously got the clinicians dealing with the patients, talking to them about profiling, consenting, working out which patients should be profiled, delivering the samples to the GLHs, and then 
integrating the results in with the clinical and the pathological care and then driving care forward on the basis of this. And it's important to be aware this is not just about cancer. It's also about non-cancer related inherited conditions. There's also pharmacogenomics in it. So it's, it's basically the GLHs of the laboratory, the GMSs of the clinicians, and we're all working together to try to change the way that we now work to take most advantage of the advances in genomic medicine that can be delivered by the GLHs. So we, we, we need to be integrating this technology into clinical care. And that's the GMS's aim, ambition and reason to be. Thank you, Alistair. You've both just nicely discussed an ambitious plan for embedding personalised medicine into mainstream healthcare. What would you now say are the main testing pathway challenges you've identified so far? Yeah, so so I'm sure Rachel will talk about a little bit about where the laboratories are up to, but I think this is an area where even within a region you can get significant differences. And partly that's due to education. Many of us were educated in the time before genomics became mainstream and we have to change the way we work. And that can be quite uncomfortable for people. And sometimes you need to put in extra effort to enable this in the front end, either in terms of uh, sample collection, but also in terms of discussion with the patient about why your molecular profiling and the potential implications for their care. So I think that's a major barrier is this sort of effort. I think in terms of cancer, one of the other major issues is that the government appropriately has set up timelines for patients to be diagnosed from either a GP referral or a diagnosis of cancer in terms of delivering treatment. And some of those timelines can be uh, can be tight, particularly when patients go on complex diagnostic pathways or end up being referred to the, fir- uh, to the wrong specialty in the first instance. And then what happens is that they come to with a cancer diagnosis relatively late in the day in terms of the government timelines. And there's a lot of pressure from government and managers to get that patient on treatment. I think what we have to be saying as clinicians is actually, no, you know, we need to be doing the appropriate analysis to make sure that the patient goes on the right treatment at the right time. And if that means they've been delayed a few days beyond a a government set timeline, I'm afraid that is unfortunate for that particular patient. And what we really need to be doing is looking at the system failures. And I I think this is a a a national national problem. It's worse in some places than others. It's worse in some situations than others. But it's a frequent problem that I hear. Yeah, I'd I'd add to that and and just build upon it. So I'd say the, the major barriers or challenges for the laboratory are kind of twofold. One starts with the sample. So we're not working on simple blood samples, which, which, you know, quite straightforward. They're taken from the patient. They come straight to the lab. We're working on pieces of tumor tissue, which obviously have quite a complex pathway before they reach us. And actually, so working with all all of the various parties to get that piece of tissue from the patient, getting it appropriately handled and then passed to the genomic testing laboratory all within a reasonable time frame, and then performing our molecular analysis as well is a real challenge. And we've been working on this for 10 years, as I said earlier, and we still haven't got it right. And it's because it's difficult. And of course, each time we open up a pathway for a new tumour type, we start again. And you'd have thought we'd have learned something by now, but yet it's still difficult and we're still struggling. And when you have pathways for patients such as our, our lung cancer pathways, where we, we're really having to work very hard to try and reduce the, t- the turnaround time in order to get those genomic results out quickly, 
it, it is very, very difficult. We're not there yet. We've got um, umpteen programs going on in terms of pathology pathways to try and reduce some of those turnaround times. And it's no wonder we're, we're in a muddle because, you know, all across the country, we're finding different obstacles. But the, the one thing that is consistent across the country is that there are obstacles and we've got to put these things right. Then we have the second challenge, which kind of fits in with what Asda has just said, is that even when it comes to genomic testing, we're finding it hard to agree what our strategy should be. As we're having an increasing number of genomic targets for each solid tumour type or haematological malignancy type, it's making sense to use what we call gene panel analysis, which basically means that we're using our sequencing technologies to say, we take our, our piece of tissue, we extract the DNA, and we're going to sequence a large number of genes. And that tells us about all of the various treatments that might be available for that patient. It also tells us about research and clinical trials as well. The problem is that that takes longer than just testing for one or two genomic targets, which will give obviously the clinician and the patient far less opportunities and information about the patient's care. And we have this constant balancing act between turnaround time and information for the patient. And we, I feel that we're having this constant rebalance and a tug of war between our clinicians, our commissioners and pathologists and laboratory staff about what is the right thing to do. And it's the patients who get stuck in the middle. It's a real challenge to come to the end of it you know, an education as to what to do with the reports when they come back. As I said, you know, this this is a new area. And for an oncologist who's used to seeing one or two genes being reported back, getting back a 200 or 500 gene panel, that is going to feel uncomfortable. And they have to get used to used to that. And it's, it's, it's something we learn. But as Rachel said, you know, the patients are at the centre of this. And, you know, I think that's the number one thing about the GMSs and the GLHs is it should be patient centric. We're trying to do the best for our patient, get them to the best treatment. I mean, I think you've addressed some of this already, but but given what you know now um, from your years of experience in perfecting this pathway, what recommendations and actions do you think need to be adopted today to address some of the challenges that you've just mentioned? Yeah, a lot of it is around education, um, but there are some simple things. So sharing best practice, simple things in how you handle the tumour can make a huge difference whether you put it in formalin, whether it's fresh, how long if you put it in formalin, it stays in the fridge or the freezer for. And lots of people have worked this out. You know, we're a national health service. We should be sharing best practice. And equally on the other end, you know, when I was talking earlier about interpreting reports, I and I know other colleagues, we spend a lot of time trying to educate other colleagues and clinicians and patients as to what these findings mean. But that, again, you know, it needs to be funded appropriately. I think I'd even go a little bit further and I'd say, can we actually achieve some standards around some of these things. So, you know, could we go as far as to say that once a sample is taken from a patient, well, what should the standard be in terms of who makes the decision about whether that that patient, that sample is going to have a molecular test? And then how long is it until that sample ends up in the genomic lab? And how long should it be before the genomic lab actually generates its, its result? What's the turnaround time? And are we testing those samples just for the standard of care genomic markers or for clinical trials as well because we can't make our minds up on it yet and maybe we need to get some information from the patients what do they want but then once we let's make a decision on it and agree what those standards are you know the government's ambition is to have an internationally leading genomic medicine service so to me if you're doing that analysis and if you want to attract the best drugs 
into the country, the best trials, then we need to be, you know, reporting that data, accumulating that data for research, but also to help us guide clinical care. And the concern I have is if we don't report it. So if you generate a report on just the 10 or 20 genes that you think of interest in 2022, well, you know, what happens to the patient in 2025 when there's a new gene that's got the latest nature paper and the latest drug associated with it? Do we then have to go back and retrospectively report all those results? Is there an automatic way of informing the patient that actually we now have a target for your cancer and we've got a new drug and I can understand at least to more work but I think if we're going to get the best utility out of doing these large panel testings we have to do it. Which brings me on to another challenge and another thing that I think we ought to be doing which is and it's a terribly boring one I'm really sorry but it, this comes to what we call digital interoperability. At the moment results reports that come out of genomic laboratories come on pieces of paper and they're essentially PDF files. So if I send a report to Alistair, it's on a piece of paper or a PDF, which isn't searchable. So he'll put it into the patient notes. But if, as you say, in two, three years time, he wants to search that report or search all of his patient notes to see, does he have any patients with a variant in gene, whatever, gobbledygook, he can't do it. We have to change this. And this is a real barrier for us because the the field is moving so fast we're constantly mm-hmm. making new discoveries. The pharma companies are constantly making new discoveries. And we have to have a way to go back to our patients for their benefit to say, which of our patients has one of these very rare variants so we can put them on a trial? Or maybe they're going to benefit from this, this new tumor agnostic drug. And at the moment, our digital informatics systems don't allow us to do that. This is something else that we have to put right and we've got to fix. Yeah, it's, it's the number one thing I teach my trainees and my nurses and even my colleagues as well is that, you know, whenever a patient's progressing, you're trying to think of a new line of treatment, go back, look at their molecular profile. Have you identified the driver of their tumour? If not, what testing has been done? And are you sure that all the testing is up to date and covers all the potential targets that you might want to target at that moment? But that, that's a very wearing, very tiring process to go down every single time you see a patient and every single time you have to think of a, a change in treatment. And what happens if they don't see me? You know, what happens if I'm also sick and they see another consultant who does, who's not aware of you know, the latest gene target and the latest trial that's coming forward? So, yeah, I, I, I completely agree with you. But I think that's, that's a big ask. Sounds like we have some way to go before we we realise on the ambition fully. I mean, looking into the future, how do you think genomic medicine services will evolve in the NHS? How would you like them to evolve? I think, number one, there needs to be a sort of almost a real time timeline going forward of a patient's cancer, which I think the IT can start to generate not only of what treatments they've had, what biopsies they've had, what molecular testing they've had, so that, you know, as a clinician, very quickly, I've got something I can click onto. And we've already got this with sort of GP timelines, we can go in and see when a patient attended their GP, what blood tests they had. So that we need to have that for their cancer journey, you know, when they had a biopsy. Liquid biopsy is a valuable tool that can allow us to track changes in tumor evolution, clones coming, subclones going. It's not the be all and end all. It's not going to replace solid tumor biopsy, but it's a really valuable tool, particularly as patients' treatments are becoming more complex. I think two things. One is that we need to get to the point where gene panels, large gene panels are standard. Could even mean whole genome sequencing, but I think large gene panels are probably sufficient at the current time. But we need to get to the point where we're not linking certain genes with certain tumor types. That, you know, if you find a ret fusion in a patient, regardless of the tumor type, you can say, right, 
I've got a drug for that patient. So we've got to unlink, as I say, specific genes with specific tumor types. We link the gene with the therapy. And because we know that a lot of our gene targets are going to get rarer and rarer. So we've got to take far more of that approach. We find a gene target. The clinician is able to say that I know that there's a drug for that gene target. And that's the way that we've got to operate. So I think that's the approach that we've got to take in the future, but it might take us a while to get that. I think the second thing for me is that genomics and genomic testing has really just got to become normal. It's got to become normalized. At the moment, it's still held up as being this special thing. And I I think it's got to become very much not just mainstream for clinicians, but just a regular laboratory service. So it's got to deliver all the things that Alistair described. It's just a regular service. And and we we worry about it a lot less. It's just routine. Thank you, Rachel and Alistair, for your time on today's podcast to discuss this fascinating topic. As always, if you have any comments on this episode or would like to know more about a particular topic, please leave us a comment below. You can also subscribe to our LinkedIn channel for future podcast episodes. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Navigate podcast. Goodbye.